You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Michael. Andre. <laughs> Once again. I never know where to go when you just kind of scream my name. Uh, you're, 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 getting, you're getting the A-list of people to the garage. It's time for another garage talk. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's kind of fun, actually, because I get to open some really old wines. And you know what? Uh, this time we had uh, Craig McDonald uh, come over of Trius fame. And, and Creekside fame. You know, it, it's one of those things where we've been talking about Chardonnay and Pinot so damn much, I almost forgot that we grow other grapes in Ontario. But this yes, is a and good... I'm glad I've taken over a little yep. bit of those reins and, and wheeled us back in to something other than Chardonnay. Very exciting. We did a, a bi-regional tasting of Cabernet Franc. I think, without dispute, the two largest regions we uh, got a chance to taste uh cabernet franc from the okanagan and a few examples from ontario and uh well let's roll the tape and and hear what craig had to say and he was quite um uh, i don't even know the word to say quite honest let's go with that all right michael we're doing another one of what you have dubbed the uh garage sessions yeah well, garage talk while we're uh, still uh, socially distancing through the ghost of um of uh the guy from Nirvana. Kurt Cobain. Kurt Cobain. That's it. Yeah. How could you forget Kurt Cobain's name? Like, you were doing indie radio right when Nirvana, like, you were there for peak Nirvana. Do you know what? Uh, the sad part is I, I had uh, totally that intro down in my head uh, about 10 minutes ago. And then I totally forgot his name. So, sucks to be me, I guess. <laughs> we are joined by... Craig McDonald, who I think the last time I spoke with him, his job title was head winemaker at Trius, but I don't know if he's gotten an upgrade or what his job title is these days. That's a good point. I wish I knew what my job was too, mate. No. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of everything, because uh, now we've got beer, whiskey, we've got everything, and we've got BC wineries. Now, I'm in charge of uh, all winemaking and, and vineyards for the Andrew Peller Group. So four wineries in Ontario and five in BC. So his new name is Jack. Yeah. yeah. And his last name is All Trades. Yeah. But we actually decided to invite Craig to come on the podcast to talk about one thing. And yes, it's because it was not Chardonnay. And hopefully that's the last time we'll say that on this podcast. No, no. I it's had a hand in this one and I said, hey, let's talk about something else that's great. Cap Franc. Something we have not talked about on the podcast in a long time. And I, I mean... Let's face it, the most anyway. the most logical choice to talk about Cabernet Franc, I think, is Brian Schmidt from Vineland, but we've already had him on, so we've moved down the list to see who else is a rock star when it comes to making Cabernet Franc, and I still remember when I was relatively new to wine writing when the 2010 Which Red Shale Cabernet Franc came out. Huh? Which you still are. Yes, yes. Oh, fair enough. I guess 10, ten years I, in. I've read your stuff. Yeah. That, okay, fair enough. Completely fair point. But I still vividly remember those first um, those first couple bottles of Red Shale Cabernet Franc, like right when I'd started writing when the 2010 came out, and then it was followed up by the 2012, uh, and then the 2016. It's just one of those really great bottles of Cabernet Franc that always deliver what, what it should, especially when you're paying a premium price for it. And if I'm not mistaken, the 10 is your first vintage. That's with right. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. With, with well, you're picking all the good vintages, Andre, that's for sure. 10, 12, and uh, 16. 
There's just something so, about Franck in a hot summer, let's, though. Let's look at Craig first of all as as where he's been in Ontario, mm. and then uh, and then let's move on to the wines actually. But where you come to Ontario, obviously not native. No, I'm from the Ottawa Valley actually. Oh, <laughs> deep down in the valley. That's kind of the east coast. Uh, anyway, uh, no, I um, I spent a couple of years uh, at Cave Spring Cellars with a good friend and mentor, Angelo. So. In between vintages in Oregon and tramping all over the place, I discovered, I literally discovered Canada by uh, having a relationship in Toronto and doing a weekend trip down here. So that piqued my interest. Then I did a couple of years with Angelo and then moved on to Creekside for 10 years with Rob Power. So strangely enough, um, not making any Cab Franc at Creekside. Uh, we never really did Cab Franc. We did it a little bit in Laura's Blend and some vintages, but very rare. In the early days, anyway, but it was, and I, I don't even know what Rob, if he does one now, but it was always Merlot yeah, and Cab there, Sauvignon. There is one. I think it's a Sarluca or something like that. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So that, that was after I, I left. But for the most part, my formative years uh, were, were Cab Franc free because I was absolutely scared of it. Uh, because, it, you know, we don't grow it in Australia because it gets too bloody hot and too soupy. So uh, I found it's, you know, at, at really I found it at, uh, at Trius slash Hillebrand. That was where it all started. And well, then you've been there since 2010. We've already established that's when you took over, and you've now yeah. been there 10 years. So that, where are you going yeah, next? That's right. No, I'm staying. I've got enough on my plate. We've got, <laughs> as you'll find out, we've got you know lots in BC happening. Um, but I still remember Cab Franc, um, even though I didn't make it at Creekside. I think the seed was planted by Angelo, you know, really saying that this was, you know, with Pinot and Gamay, that this was one of the three red stars of Niagara. And that's always imprinted on me from the beginning so you know hopefully you'll see a bit of that magic today well i mean it's interesting like i i listed off the red shale cab franc from uh three outstanding hot crazy hot yeah. summers i think that summer in 2010 uh you were one of the first people i interviewed uh when i started working on my first bit of wine writing altogether and i could probably dig up the tape of you saying that it's the best vintage that you've ever seen yeah is that does that still hold true or? Yeah, you know that ten was um, was pretty stunning. I mean, I walked into it uh, a bit of a gift, although it was thirty percent lower in crop. I mean, everything came racing ahead, um, you know, and it was on our doorstep before we knew it. So it was fast and furious. But the Cab Franc was great. I mean, it was all estate, it was perfectly manicured, and uh, I just fine tuned it right. And like all good wines, you don't have to do a lot of work in the winery if you get it right in the vineyard. So it was it was a perfect. Perfect year, it really was. But the, I think actually twelve was better, to be honest. Though. Yeah, I actually do remember you saying that as well. Um, but speaking of, of of hot vintages and regular vintages, what we have in front of us is the twenty nineteen, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, the entry level Cabernet Franc from Trias. I think this is what about fifteen bucks a bottle. Yeah, I think it's fifteen ninety five. Say sixteen, but. Fifteen or sixteen, I should know the price. But but nineteen is not a great vintage. No, it's that's that's a... that's where I was going with this here. Well, you know what, it, 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 it was better than 18. 18 was challenging because it was, you know, fairly cool all summer and then you had blisteringly warm fall with tons of rain. Um, we had a moderately better summer, but we had a better fall. And, you know, I always find that Cab Franc does better if you have a better better fall and you get those that flavour development. So even though 19 was cooler, you, there's still good concentration. And, you know, I think for 19, think about it, we're only August... It's only, uh, you know, nine months after it was a bloody grape. So pretty approachable. 
um, despite the fact it's a very young wine. Uh, so the 19s are actually better than I would have thought. But, you know, going through harvest, how they've turned out and how they've gathered a bit of flesh and a bit of bit of richness um, is is quite impressive. Well, how how does um, the entry level come together versus the red shell, which is what we're going to taste next? Sure. Yeah. No. The um, so the entry level is predominantly grower fruit uh, from all over, but mostly Niagara on the Lake. So you know they tend to crop a little bit heavier. The good news is when you're buying from growers, which we've had all over the peninsula, you, you can really pick and choose um, what blocks go in a what program. So whether it's uh, you know another another winery or it goes in a Gretzky or, or even the Pella. But I've got my favourites, so I, I always start in you know the Four Mile Creek, and then I work my way down to the Lakeshore as the season gets uh, gets going. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's predominantly grower fruit. Um, but you know they they're older vines, um, and they get uh, you know a lot of them have got irrigation, so in those dry years they're they're able to keep them ticking along. Because you know we go like this year for example, it's bloody hot. It's the third warmest growing season on record, oh, wow. 2020. So people are irrigating like crazy, and I think people think irrigation is a bad thing, but but it's not if you're trying to ripen through you know water deficits. So um, so yeah, a lot of our growers are really well set up. Um, they're, they're, they've been doing this a long time, and Cab Franc, they just need a little bit of tune up with yield, make sure they don't overcrop it, and uh, you know they're leaf pulling, they're hedging, they're doing all the things they never did 20 years ago when I first came here, which again, frightened the shit out of me when I first tried Cab Franc because I was like, oh, my God. It's like, you know, capsicum water or, you know, red bell pepper water. They were thin, lean, full of pyrazines. Yeah, full uh, of bell and, pepper, yep. Yeah, and I think that's part of the DNA of Cab Franc, but it was a bit dominant for me, and now I think that the proof is in how we grow our grapes. I think there's still a nice herbal note to this wine and the tobacco, but yeah. I mean, uh, and the fruit is not... Uh, as upfront as it is in a hotter vintage, but I, I I think it's a very approachable wine, very easy yeah. drinking, and for those who are reminiscent of the green pepper days, will probably uh, like this one a little more because of yeah. that herbal quality. Yeah. It, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't have the full on on bell pepper that Craig was talking about, and I think I may no. be one of the people though that like unapologetically I'm a fan of in the hands of a right uh, the hands of a, a good winemaker having a little bit of that that bell pepper in the front and i've said it before if if you drink any loire valley wines you're bound to end up with a few bottles that do have a bit of that that bell pepper in it as well it's not necessarily oh, a bad of, thing of overcropping and underripe fruit though is it not Craig? Or... well you know i've michael i've seen us you know thin grapes down or vineyards down to two or three tons an acre and it still has a green character so some of it's clone some of it's soil um you know and just the way that they're grown um as much as it's yield so i've even seen guys that are like heavy but five tons an acre and there's not a hint of green in it you know mm. so it, it's really very specific down to the vineyard um but yeah typically you know i would say you would see a little more of that herbaceous character as you go down the price scale in Cab Franc and as you go further up in the price scale you see less of it more concentrated sort of earthy red currant tobacco kind of flavors you know and just more compaction of the wine and hopefully you'll hopefully, hopefully you'll see that in the next wine red shale so I know, I know Andre's chomping at the bit to get the red shell because it continues to be one of his favorites. So why don't no, we... No, but you uh, know what? I, I, I'm, I really am pondering that this this 2019. I, I just have a couple more questions about 2019 because I know there's, um, you know, there's stories of last uh, last 
harvest where some people actually let the fruit hang longer that uh sorry so long that the table wines were harvested after some ice wine harvest came in when would this have been uh harvest harvested uh look it was between late october and early november um see there's a point of no return andre when you go back and you sort of go backwards um so think of it like this you know you're getting massive dehydration on some of the flavors that you don't want uh you know i think last year some people pushed it a bit hard and they got great sugar uh, because of concentration and dehydration but the flavor development wasn't really there and and you, you really get true flavor development when you've got a canopy and when you've got you know photosynthesis still happening to some degree not when it's in the dead of winter and you're basically you know picking pre-ice wine grapes so you know that's a bit of a it's a rookie move but i think you know, sometimes, you know, you just don't have the choice. Uh, and last year, a lot of people just, it was so cool that they had to push it deep into November to get it. And then we actually got snow in mid-November. We got a really, really big hit of cold. And uh, this didn't see any of that. This was all picked with, um, you know, I would say those those conditions uh, way ahead of where this was. So, Alrighty, it seems like you're quiet now. You must, you must be sipping on the red shale. Is that what you're doing? Yeah. No, I'm actually, I'm still on the on this Cabernet Front. You know, it's one of those things where I, I know we've never really we gotten into this on the on the podcast, but when people talking about wines they cook with, um, you know, often they'll talk about pouring something that they don't like or, or something that just shows up at the house, and I've always hated that strategy. Uh, because then you end up with food that just tastes like the garbage wine that you've started to cook with, especially when you're doing, you know, tomato sauces, things like that. Because the, the, the I red... don't know where you're going with this one, Andre. I'm the... not liking the sound of what's going on here. No, but I mean, this is one of those wines where you can do it guilt-free, buy two bottles, one oh. for the food and one for yourself. I mean, you don't, you, you wouldn't want to do that with the red shell because it costs more than twice what it costs to get a bottle of this. But this is the sort of wine you should be cooking with because it tastes good. It's going to make your food taste good. And you can afford to get a second bottle or a third bottle to share with your guests as well and be like, hey, this great wine that we're tasting, it's what's in the food. It's one of the reasons why the food tastes delicious. If you cook with crappy ingredients, you're going to end up with crappy food. If you cook with good ingredients, you should cook with good ingredients. You're not going to be cooking with expensive wine, period. And, and the same thing goes for uh, for wine. If you, uh, if you have crappy grapes, you're going to make crappy wine, right? Yeah, yeah 100%. I'm still thinking about the cooking comment. Um just back to that point, though, uh, you know, when you're cooking with any wine, you know, you've got to, you got to burn off the alcohol, right? Yeah. You got to, you know, some people just throw it in and then say, ta-da, you know, and it tastes like some boozy uh, concoction where it's out of balance. But the real flavor is, is when you, you flash off the alcohol and, and uh, reduce it, you know, I think. Um, so I, I've even cooked with wine, like I'll cook it, hold it off to the side and then add it later just so you, you get rid of some of those volatile alcohol components. But uh, Andre, I once did a, uh, a beef shank and yeah. uh, they said put a whole bottle of Zinfandel in and it was in a slow cooker and it just tasted really boozy. So I don't yeah. know who made that recipe up, but it was horrific. <laughs> yeah, I would, um, I'd cook it for half an hour with the lid off on high heat and then yep. sim and put the lid on and simmer it. But that, that's a big, that's a mistake that a lot of, I mean, cooks make is that you add a ton of wine put the lid on and you just trap all that alcohol yeah 15 yeah. percent zin might be a little uh yeah it was nasty yeah <laughs> well and you just... definitely you definitely don't want your food to taste like booze regardless of what wine you're cooking with right no yeah, yeah. cool all right all right i think we're ready to move on yeah. I, I i jumped ahead while, oh, while you guys were chatting would you move your feet out yeah oh thanks 
Well, let's try. Craig's it. got all the wine in front of his feet, so like he's he's like tucked in, like he's in kindergarten and <laughs> and uh, uh, sitting on his feet. So I'm like, why don't you move those wines over and, and you can stretch out out a little bit. Right. So here we go, guys. This is where we amp it up a little bit. So you know, 17. Again, sort of. You know, you look at 10, 12, 15, 16, they're the really hot years. 17 was one of the coolest summers, but then we had what I'd consider the perfect fall. Um, you know, we had virtually no rain. I think there were two days in 45 days of rainfall in 17, so it was perfectly dry. It was the ultimate hang time vintage. So uh, I think it's a really underdog uh, vintage. Encourage anyone to go out and buy 17s from Niagara. And this one was picked at nearly 25 bricks, so you did get quite a bit of raisining, but there was still canopy, so you were getting flavour development as well. Um, we pick it on two separate occasions. We do an earlier pick for, for fruit forwardness, and then a secondary pick into November. So it's sort of a double pick, single vineyard wine, um, you know, planted in the early 2000s uh, by JL before he left, before oh. Daryl came. So. Uh, it's one of the early plantings at the, the Clark Farm. Um, yeah, well, I love this wine, and it's actually the wine that's a bit transcendent for me. And um, I would say a lot of winemakers would be inspired by other people's wines, but I actually, this one for me has been a personal journey and just, you know, looking at a single plot and understanding what Cab Franc is year after year. Sometimes when you're blending Cab Franc, you don't always look through the same lens, but when you do a single vineyard, you're able to look at that particular clone, rootstock, and site, and see it through the lens of a different vintage and a different different uh, sense of time. Uh, the same place, different time. So, so, uh, so where does the wine get its name from? Well, it's funny because you know, remember the 2009, uh, well, 2007 and eight were the, the Carlton and the Clark Farm wines for Hillebrand. We had a very old school label. So they wanted to redo the label in 2010, and they said, well, we don't want to just call it Showcase like we used to. So have you got any ideas? And I said, well, you know, remember, too, I came in July, just before harvest, right? So I'm tramping a lot in vineyards and getting a sense of what's where because I had, I had a million acres to cover. And, um, you know, one thing I noticed was the soil structure in this vineyard was uh, a lot of red shale and schist and all sorts of, rocks uh, that had been popped up from the spring and um, I hadn't seen that in any other vineyard so I've since seen it in other ones but um, at the time I just thought well it's got lots of red shale in it and they said why don't we call it red shale I said yeah I love red shale that's it's a you know it really if you're going to do a single vineyard why not name it after the soil that it's growing in so I didn't think it would become as popular as it has um, but I thought it made sense just based on on the vineyard true story True story. So the next question is, since you see a lot of Cab Franc and you're talking about seeing Cab Franc in different vineyards, is there any plan to make other single vineyard Cab Francs at Trius, or is this like the single vineyard and that's how it's going to be? Well, it's the only vineyard that we have at the Clark Farm, although I am uh, talking with a grower who is 20 feet away from Clark Farm, who currently has Zweigelt and uh, oh, cool. Tremina. Um, and I'm buying it off him this year under the condition that we do a longer-term contract to plant Cab Franc. So on the same soil and everything. So just currently working with him right now. So I'd like to extend the, the red shale but do it on two different sites in the same vineyard, if that makes sense. Yep. Much like I've done with the Pinot at the Clark Farm Pinot. It used to be 115. Uh, we've since planted 
two, uh, sorry, three more vineyards after that, 777 and 667. Um, so now the Clark Farm Pinot is a combination of three clones from four different sites as opposed to one clone from a single site on the same vineyard. And will you be doing different bottlings of it with different clones? Or is that something that's just too uh, flat rock for you? Yeah. No, I love what they do. I think it's good because you, you do get to understand the clone and its influence. But I think I'm less interested in single clone than I used to be as I get a bit older and wiser. And I think it's more about, you know, multi-clone, massal, you know, mix and match. To me, it's just more an interpretation of the season uh, by the site. And the more sort of magnifying glasses you have looking at the same site, meaning different clones, then the better the wine could be. So, yeah, I'd like to maybe mix up maybe a bit of 327 instead of... This is 214, which I think is great. Uh, 327 is another clone that is... I consider those two clones to be the best Cab Franc clones in Niagara. And uh, two clones that I helped Kelly plant at Honsberger, ironically. They're the two Jesus. clones there. So, Michael, are you, two clones. Michael, are you done being a complete and utter nerd with the questions you're asking? Can I ask a real question now? You know, uh, I feel that you do that with uh, with your, uh, you know, the one that it's on your table, table, table. So I thought I could pull it off with a little cap front here. You know, Craig, you touched on one thing before Michael completely started acting like a total dork. Um and you said that you're on, on a journey where you're discovering what Cabernet Franc is, vintage in, vintage out. And I, this is the first red shell that I've, I've tasted in, um, in, in a couple of years. And it's vastly different than the hot vintages that I picked. So I need to ask you, what is Cabernet Franc to you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Cabernet Franc to me is, um, is kind of less is more. So it's, it's more French oak. Uh, but less new and it's less um, padding of from the winemaker around the wine so really it's it's like making pinot if there was a red grape that you want to make like you do with pinot and show a bit of restraint cab franc is the one so to me you just weather the storm so for example you know early on when i came there we were, our winemakers were basically sort of thinking well we can only make we can only make cab franc or red wines in the grape years in niagara and i said uh-uh no I said, maybe Cab Sauve, I agree, but, but Merlot and Cab Franc, we have to make it every year to truly understand it. And you know, see, uh, and I've been surprised because in the lesser years where the Cab Franc is a bit shy, it doesn't have all the things that you think it should have, um, it, it develops those over time. It's just a little bit backwards at a point in time. So uh, 2011 was a, was a good example of that. Um, pretty horrendous year in Niagara. 13 was another one that was tricky. Lots of rain, lots of humidity, and, and lots of breakdown and botrytis. In... Fourteen also fits kind of in that. Yeah, fourteen um, was a little less challenging, and we'll, I've got one of those here today, which we can talk about. But it was a slightly drier fall. It's kind of hit and miss, you know. Like you could, you could pick your spots a bit. Whereas thirteen and, and eleven, it was just it was like a show of rain, and it came down from Pinot mid vintage all the way through, and then by the time. Bordeaux came around, you know, you had a kiss of botrytis or you had a little bit of rot that you had to watch. And if, you know, those classic overnight, you know, fall nights of uh, humidity and 20 degrees overnight, you know, I, I still remember working with Rob Power, him saying, you know, as he's, as he's driving home at 11 o'clock and it's 
foggy and he's got the windshield wipers on because of the humidity and fog. It's 20 degrees. He's like, you can hear the vines screaming as he's driving by them, saying, cursing him sort of thing. And yeah, so, you know, it's just those nights you really fear. Um, so we had a, kiss, a little bit of that in 17, but, but 11 and 13 were, were very much like that. 14 less so, I think. God, I rambled on there, didn't I? I don't even know what no, I was talking No, no, I oh, think it's great. I love hearing... Oh, yeah. Well, that's why it's like... Did he answer your question, Andre, or...? Uh, ish, ish. Well, you know, I, I think I think, I think, think the big the big question I have is, what did you do that was so different in 2017? Because I think about, like I said, the, my favorite one, 16, 12, and 10, which, you know, really, really was looking to Bordeaux for inspiration. You can tell me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but it... it it really just felt like Saint Emilion calling me from the glass when I drank those particular vintages of the wine. Where this just, I mean, as as someone who's been a, a fan of Niagara wine for a long time, this just screams everything good about Niagara Cabernet Franc. It's got that tobacco leaf yeah. that Michael said. Uh, you know, the fruit skewing a little bit darker than the than the entry level the the twenty nineteen there. Uh, yeah. The tannin is. Still a little bit fuzzy, but super well integrated. So this definitely has five to ten years in a, in a cellar. Ten years in Michael's cellar, which is proper temperature controlled. Five years in my cellar, which is just a really big wine rack in an apartment in Toronto. Um, like this is just an like yeah. as as a, like I said, as a fan of Ontario wine, I'm incredibly proud to have this to put on my table. And I'd be curious if any psalm in the city would be able to accurately guess that this is Niagara. Well, before before Craig answers, I, I'm going to say that this is this has got some pretty rugged tannins to it, yeah. uh, but that fruit is just kind of nicely sitting in the background there. So yeah, Andre, I totally agree with you that that at least uh, at least five years, but uh, mm. ten to twelve probably. The, the, the tannins are are rugged and have 17. and have a little bit of that like that rustic feel to it, but they're not obtuse. Like this is yeah. drinking really good right now. I'm going to set the bottle aside after the podcast and revisit it in three, four hours. And it's probably going to be ready to rock then. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, so when I was saying less is more, I kind of, I'm referencing like Pinot, uh, Cab Franc to me is like Pinot is, you know, um, to a winemaker. So you look at, um, the nuances of the vintage and you kind of, it's like a roller coaster. Whereas, you know, to me, I want to express it by the vintage and I want to, you know, put less oak into it. So in those cool years, like 17, I think, you know, even though this is pretty rich, you know, I, there could be uh, the tendency to over, you know, oversaturate it with new oak. Um, so I, I kind of want to pull it back a little bit. So whereas maybe Merlot and Cab Sauve can handle a bit more oak and, you know, maybe the consumer understands that in that context, like Merlot can just take, it's like Shiraz in Australia or Syrah and just just soaks it up whereas you know Cab Franc I think you've got to appreciate that the delicate nature of it even though this is quite rich um, it's a French oak wine for me you know and uh, and less new oak so it, it's a parallel with Pinot to me and I think that's again that's what Angelo taught me years ago you know the Gamay Pinot and, and Cab Franc they all they're all in the same sort of triangle um and when you know, that's how you build your industry is is acknowledging that and, and trying to build some some typicity in not only the way we grow them but the way we make them. So, Craig, do you think the se- the secret to managing Cabernet Franc from Niagara is to treat it, uh, I, I guess, like you've said a few times, more like Pinot and less like trying to look towards, say, Bordeaux or uh, California? 
Well, Bordeaux, I'd say, yeah, but California, I wouldn't go down that road. Um, I would say, Andre, that, uh, you know, as I said earlier, less is more. So to try and showcase the varietal character of the wine, and when I first came here, I used to try and think I'd have to correct it. <clears throat> you know, I didn't really understand it, to be honest. So now I, I do understand it, and I want to sort of be less um, less in interactive with the wine and let it do its thing. And, and I just, I don't want to put new oak into it. I, I want to bottle it with a bit more freshness and I want it to show its true colors rather than make the wine, you know? And that's something that I learned over time because I used to whack a lot of oak to it in the early days. Even the, even the showcase wines, um, we used to use a proportion of American oak and French oak um, and, you know, 30 or 40% new oak. Now we're, you know, 25 to 30% new French, but only French, and the rest is old French. So, um, you know, just part of the evolution, really. But, uh, you know, I, I just think it's a mindset that a winemaker needs to sort of, with Cab Franc, that, you know, just show, just leave it alone and let it do its thing and, and give it time in barrel, but for more older oak and be more restrained. So Craig's kind of brought this up, and I, I, I don't want to, you know, dwell on this too long, but I have noticed... Uh, especially recently, that a lot of winemakers are using uh, American oak with Cab Franc. Is there a reason for that? I know that you've also used it. Yep. Is it to give it some sweetness? Is it to give it some flavor? Is it you just you just now have totally reversed it and said no? I only use uh, French completely. What's what's the deal? Well, that's not entirely true. I guess um, I was referring to the red shale and the top, you know, the single vineyard wines as an expression of the site. But but uh, there is a place for American oak in uh, Cab Franc, and you'll see it in. You probably saw a touch of it in the Trias at the beginning, and you'll probably see it in the Pella. But um, you won't see it in the red shale, or you won't see it in the next one you're having, which is the Odyssey from BC, the Grey Monk Cab Franc 2016. But um, it does add a bit of volume and a bit of what I call wood sugar, uh, just some uh, mouthfeel to the wine. So it builds a bit of body and texture and, and broadens it a touch. But you don't want to have too much of those charry, lactone, American oak characters like the bourbon barrel character just dominating it. So I, I think, actually think American oak, uh, used American oak can be quite useful in Cab Franc. But, um, you know... As you use more American, for me, it goes down in the scale towards the more commercial end of the business. Um, just because it has a bit more broader appeal, the consumer uh, wants a little bit more impact, and that's what American Oak does. It, it, provo it provides a bit more impact and volume to the wine, um, which I think is great. But, you know, it's mm. when you're making Cap Franc at 15 bucks and you're making it at 50 bucks and you're making it $25, just like you choose different vineyards, you can choose different barrels as well. For, for the desired intention of the winemaker. So. so I think, as Craig has said, we are now going all the way west coast. Yeah. Andre, do you uh, do you have any questions before I get geeky about uh, about it? Or no, you know I what? Just I, I'd go like right to on? I'd like to kick things off about about this wine with a with a tasting note. We've got the 2016 uh, Grey Monk Odyssey Cabernet Franc, and it's one of those things where I've seen the odd article pop up talking about. Cabernet Franc from California, and I've had Cabernet Franc from BC. Uh, and then, Craig, you can completely tell me that I'm wrong and and full of crap, but my impression that I've found of um, warmer climates in Cabernet Franc is that the more 
heat that pummels these grapes, the more of the varietal characteristics get get sucked away from it. And it doesn't mean that the wines aren't good. Um, I've had really great Cabernet Franc from Mount Veeder, and I know we're talking about Okanagan, which is not the same thing as Napa. And I'm fortunate enough, I'm, the, I'm doing this for the name drop, to have a, a Dietert Cabernet from the Tokolon Vineyard, which is one of the greatest wines that I've ever tasted. But I found it didn't taste like Cabernet Franc. I found it tasted more like really good Cab Sauve. Like, what is it like to deal with Cabernet Franc when you get that extra heat on it? Well, that's the thing. I mean, um, you know, when you're in a warmer climate, you look to altitude to sort of balance things off a little bit, right? So you need mountain influence and maybe even coastal influence to try and moderate the, the, the temperature. But I, I find that Cab Franc, um, like in Australia, for example, how many great Cab Francs have you had from Australia? Well, probably not a lot. There's not too many out nope. there. Um, it's either put in a blend or that we just don't do it because it becomes a little one-dimensional and, you know, it gets it accumulates sugar so quickly um, before it accumulates flavor development, you know, and before it develops those great flavors. So you find it's, it, you know, you need hang time with it, which is really key. Um, and with hang time comes really lots of concentration. So then your alcohol goes up and now you're 16% uh, Cab Franc and, you know, you've got lots and lots of tannin um, and you're very raisined in the fruit profile and that to me isn't Cab Franc um, even though it makes a great wine it's it's to me that it's about finding the perfect balance between ripeness and freshness which I think is one thing I've learned about Niagara uh, we have the perfect soil and we have the perfect climate so when you're making a wine you know you can be trying to hold it back or you can be trying to push it up the mountain and i'd much rather push it up the mountain and struggle to get to the ripeness because that's where you're going to get that flavor development and um as opposed to just waiting around for you know hang time and, and flavors to develop um you've already got the alcohol and you've already got the, the sugar so you know to, it's it's the reason why a lot of winemakers don't do cab franc in australia is because it just it gets so ripe so quickly um, and it doesn't taste like anything, even in BC. Uh, so this wine, for example, we pick it a little bit earlier and modify the way we grow the grapes because I don't want that soupy, you know, one-dimensional texture of wine where it's just kind of like nothing. I, I want to have a bit of leanness and a bit of focus to the wine, so we, we do pick it a bit early, and that's why it's under 13%, which is pretty rare in BC, I have to say. Well, Andre, you stole my, my question, which was going to be, what's it like to grow Cab Franc in BC as uh, as opposed to Ontario. Oh, so but that's I okay. I, that away. I asked the question better than you would have, so I mean, it's it's all good. I'll give you uh, I'll give you that one, because sometimes you can geek out just as much as I can. <laughs> so, I should ask Craig, as we're chewing on some cheese here. Um, so, you guys have five wineries out in British Columbia. I'm, I'm assuming all of them make Cab Franc. And what are those five wines now? Five wineries now? Yeah, so we have... Um, we have the Kelowna Winery, which is home to Sandhill, right in Kelowna. Um, we operate a few other brands out of that, but, but Sandhill is kind of the, the DNA behind the Kelowna Winery. We also have Gretzky and um, Conviction, a few other brands. Um, then we go down to Red Rooster and Naramata. So those were the two wineries that we owned when I first came on board. But since then, we've bought three more. Uh, so four years ago, we went out and... Uh, uh, we got Grey Monk, which is in Lake Country, which is uh, 
a sub app which is to the north of Kelowna. So remember, as you go, as everyone knows, as you go further south, it gets warmer. Yes. But as you go further north, it gets a little cooler. So you're in the extreme cool end of the spectrum at uh, Greymonk, even though these vineyards are from the south. But uh, you know, great aromatic whites up there, a little higher on the mountain. Very, very uh, good aspect down to uh, the lake. Um, and then anyway, as you go further south again, uh, we've got two two big hitters in the uh, in the southern part of the Okanagan, Black Hills and Tinhorn Creek, both in the sort of uh, richer, denser style of winemaking. Although, you know, I'd say uh, Tinhorn's taken a run at sort of the Golden Mile um, sub-app and I've been making wines from their single vineyard for a long time uh, in the whites. And then I think, you know, Nota Bene from Black Hills is the... The, the icon wine from Black Hills that uh, has a good chunk of Cab Franc in it, um, but is predominantly Cab Sauve, and that's from um, you know, the Black Sage on the other side of the valley. So very different sites, very different wineries. Um, so yeah, we've got the gamut really from Naramata uh, all the way up to um, you know which we consider the original cool climate. But what I'm finding is that up the north is really really where the action is up near Grey Monk. That's the that's the interesting part. So, God, I rambled on there, didn't I? No, you did pretty no, good. That was, as, um, now, I'm all... going to assume that due to the pandemic, you have not been out to British Columbia in, in any way, no. shape, or form? Not since March, no. And no. we've all had to pull out our atlases for atlases for that so we could follow the maps. But, uh, yeah, no, that's... Yeah, no, so five out there, five operating wineries. Um, I've got two head winemakers that run the operation out there, one in the north and one in the south, and they do uh, do a great job. Um, and we, we share fruit, right? So all the winemakers get together and we'll, uh, we'll blend based on, on the fruit and, uh, you know, and based on uh, how it looks. And uh, we'll actually blend uh, multi-regional if we need to. So you share fruit. It's kind of like a fruit gangbang. Oh, Jesus, Michael. Uh, okay, then. <laughs> Maybe I'll have some more cheese. <laughs> yeah, something like that, Michael. Yeah, yeah that's it. Fruit orgy, I like to call it. There you go. See? Something Just, uh... a little less... Something a bit more inclusive. I oh, guess I guess that's a little bit more uh, more politically correct. Um, really? Right. Uh, you think that's politically correct? So, do you think BC will ever be known for Cabernet Franc as we're trying really hard? Actually, you know what? Let me back it up. Do you think Cabernet Franc has the potential to be Canada's grape, where it's something that can unify quality between Niagara and BC? And yeah, I'm discounting. Nova Scotia and Quebec in this conversation, but out of the established wine regions, do you think Cabernet Franc has the potential to be a unifying factor to help bring Canadians as a whole uh, to the industry and to the wines? Unequivocally, yes, absolutely yes. Undoubtedly, unequivocally, yes. Um, you know, in Ontario, I think it is um, is our leader in the Bordeaux varieties um, for both consistency and uniqueness. I mean, mind you, I love Merlot and Cab Soap, but we don't always get it every year. And Merlot is sensitive to the cold, whereas Cab Franc is hardy. Um, you know, it, it, we've been growing that for a lot longer here, and we know it. Um, in BC, I think, uh, you know, with over 400 wineries there all trying to vibe for identity, um, there's a, it's kind of a mishmash. There's a lot of stuff going on. A lot of, I mean, there's Tariga Nacional planted there and all sorts of, Italian and Portuguese varieties, Sangiovese, Barbera, you know, there's there's a whole mishmash, but... It's like, like they're the stratus of... Well, 
you know, everyone's trying to do their own thing. There's a lot more flex there to what you can grow. But I think like Tin Horn, for example, they made a name for Cab Franc many years ago, and that's their that's what they they hang their hat on. They've had other wines come and go, but but to me, they they were one of the original Cab Franc pallbearers uh, for sure. So I'm lucky that we have those vineyards now. But yeah, I think you can do it, Andre. I think it's just. Um, it's, it's a little bit confusing to the consumer. I think it was Merlot and Pinot Gris when I first came to to Canada. BC was known for, you know, Merlot. Like Merlot, Cop- Merlot especially. Merlot, yeah. yeah. Burrowing Owl was one of the wines that I kind of went, aha, uh-huh, wow, look at that, yeah. you know. Um, and then, you know, Sparkling at Blue Mountain. I was like, oh, my <laughs> God, wow, pretty good. And up at, uh, you know, up at the Sipes up there at Summerhill, um, you know, You'd have uh, Howard Soon running around. He was one of the, the pioneers. Uh, you know, he's right at the the pointy end of trials when he planted Sand Hill. He, he did some crazy stuff up there. So um, there's still a bit of that going on, but I think there is a bit of a need for some regional identity as as BC gets into more of a sub-appellation focus, which I know they're trying to do. I think Ontario is a little further ahead there. I think we'll see that happen. So we're gonna open. Hang the, on, uh, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I, I, I have, no, I have a, I have a follow, I have a follow-up question though. Snap the cap. More than Pinot or Gamay. Uh, you're, you're talking Ontario still, correct? No, I'm talking about if there's one grape that will help unify uh, Canada, you know, unify an identity to Canada. We're just like, okay, this is BC Cabernet Franc or BC Gamay. This is Ontario Cabernet Franc. This is Ontario Gamay. Do you think that Cabernet Franc cuts the mustard more than Pinot or Gamay in terms of being able to, you know, stake the Canadian identity to it? I can almost feel Thomas behind me right now as I say this, and the wrath of all BC and Ontario winemakers, but yes. I think in Ontario that I think that, you know, we hang our hat on the heartbreak grape on Pinot for all the right reasons, but I think the real opportunity is Cab Franc if we decided to go for it and unify it. Uh, yes, I think Cab Franc for Ontario. I give it, I give it uh, a clear uh, pole position, and then I give, uh, I give it, you know, a second to Pinot and a third to Gamay. Gamay to me, you know, is my favourite lunch wine of all times, but it's always going to be second to, to Pinot. But, um, but I think I'll put, I'll, put, I'll go out and say Cab Franc for sure. In BC, uh, I'd be less so. I think we can do Cab Sauv and Merlot better than we can, can Cab Franc. Mm-hmm. But I think if you go north to Lake Country and if you start exploring the outer limits, I think that's where Cab Franc will shine. But if you look at the Okanagan Valley as it sits today, no, I don't think so. And that's why I like Craig, because he's on my team. Well, it was also a straight, a straight shooter answer, because I mean, the question I asked was something that we could stake a Canadian identity on. But he also threw in the caveat that there's stuff in BC that that does better. I think the further south down the the valley you go in the Okanagan, uh, Merlot gets a hell of a lot more interesting than it does from California, and it's something I, that I, I am. Syrah from uh, BC is uh, is is making a, a comeback, and that's that I'm I'm saying to a uh, yeah. uh, to an Australian winemaker. So. Yes, yes. Dare Be- I say Shiraz? <laughs> hey, do Dare you still do you still call the Trius uh, Syrah Shiraz? No, I mean, you know, this goes back to the old days when I was with Rob at Creekside. You know, we planted Shiraz because we we really thought, you know, we, well, Marcus was the previous winemaker there was was an Aussie, and he 
he was hell bent on Shiraz. So, and we had 2002 was our first vintage, and it was you know 24 bricks and super ripe and three year old vines, and it was quite meaty and rich. And we thought, yeah, let's call it Shiraz. But but truly, we're more Northern Rhone, we're more Syrah like in that, um, and I think we're more we're more Chinon, we're more you know. Uh, definitely more French in Cab Franc. So there's a parallel there. So we're moving back to Ontario. We have uh, a Peller Estates 2014. Oh, yeah. This is the private reserve, which is the, I think, did you pour yourself some? Or I think uh, you're still on the, oh, yeah, you're still right. on the BC. Okay, one. yep. Uh, I, gotta, I gotta check Craig here. He's already drunk. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so, this so this would be... Is, this is the 14. This is the private reserve. This, and this is would be the mid-tier. Like is, this, uh, this would be on par... Average, as far as I'm concerned, yep. for Ontario. Yeah, so I mean, 14 was, you know, it's easy for people to bring their best vintages, right? And, and they're all great wines and everyone pats each other on the back. But I like to bring the lesser vintages because you do see some of the edginess and the, the, the you know, like I mentioned, outer limits of the variety earlier. Um, and, and you see that with 14, 13, 11, 17, but 17 got really lucky at the end. So, and you'll see it in 18 and 19. So, you know, remember, Niagara... We only get three crazy good vintages every 10 years, you know? And we get three ones you want to forget about, and we get three that are somewhere in the middle, and we get one that could go either way, could go anywhere. So, you know, it's it's farming, and that's just the way it is. Um, this was kind of what I consider in the middle. I don't think it was a bad vintage, but it wasn't a great vintage. So, But in time, I'm, I've been impressed with the 14s and the way they've developed. So let's have a look at it. And it's got American oak in it, so everything that... You know, I was talking about earlier. It's got a little bit of, a little bit of everything to it. Your turn, Andre. We heard you mumbling in the background there. No, I wasn't mumbling about any. Oh, I, I think the question I was going to ask is, is just for clarification that, um, sorry, this is the private reserve. This would be on on par with the uh, Trius Red, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's the mid tier wine, and and you know, I, I like showing these wines because they do offer. You know, often they're declassified barrels from the top tier that make their way down at, at half the price, and uh, they represent good value. And we don't private reserve is, you know, honestly, it's a bit of an awkward name. People don't often know what it means, but it's it's, it's all smoke it's and mirrors branding and marketing, right? Well, yeah, that's the, that's the that's kind of the thing that winemakers play when you work for a larger company. You've got you know many different eyes and hands on the wines as well, so. But private reserve for me, and, and Katie's always really over-delivered on this wine. Yes. You know, it's always done very well, uh, whether it's Sauvignon Blanc or Chardonnay or Riesling. You know, she does a bunch, and they're always uh, pretty tasty little wines. So, you, you know, um, it's, it's, th this wine's got some flesh and juice to it, right? It's quite, it's quite rotund, and it's uh, it's, it's quite uh, quite rich. No, it, it well, I mean, I'll be perfectly honest. I think it's it's lacking a bit of the the concentration that the 2017 Red Shale has, but as it should, it's it would have been half the price. But if you're looking for a place to park your money in a cooler vintage, it's one of the things I've learned from talking to you and to, talking to Katie over the years is that in those vintages where it's maybe not as hot and a bit more of a challenge to get the fruit ripe. If, you, if you're looking for a way to score some primo wines, you're better off to look at the mid-tier because the um, the good barrels are not good enough to make it to the Trius Grand Red or make it to the Trius Red Shell, and they may end up declassified into Trius Red or Peller Private Reserve. So 
in an off vintage that's not as crazy hot, you may end up with a better wine than you would in a crazy hot vintage or at least as good. I find this 14 to be kind of very similar to the uh, to the 19. I agree. Uh, it's got that herbaceous note to it. Uh, it's a little bit on the leaner side. Obviously, we're looking at six years. The fruit is not as, as vibrant, uh, but it, it, it is one of those leaner kind of wines that I think a lot of people would think of as as Cab Franc. The tobacco is starting to, yeah. to fade, uh, whereas in the 19, it was very prominent, very in your face. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a very good sipping wine, uh, but it's a wine that I would probably drink now and not hold much longer. Yeah. Uh, it's under screw cap. I think it's good. like it's not really showing a lot of that that second or tertiary flavors. Like it's still got a freshness to it, and I think that's due to the fact that it's closed with a, a screw cap as opposed to a cork. I, I think it's got a few more years left in it, Michael, before it starts to get a little dusty. Yeah, I think it's 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 at its peak right now, the fourteen. Uh, I think in the next few years, those secondary and tertiaries will start to come in. Um, and you remember too, in those leaner years, like Michael said, they don't have a lot of meat on their bones to start with as they start to age. So you'll get into those characters pretty quick. But to me, that that's part of the journey of Cab Franc too, right? I mean, I don't want to drink the same wine every friggin' year. You know, I want to have uh, Cab Franc from different years and articulate and have meaningful conversations with people about, you know, and winemakers, that's, what, that's all we do. You know, when you go to a, a dinner party with winemakers, they just all they do is talk about bloody wine, which is great. They talk about the vintage, this vintage, that vintage. And it's a whole series of stories that build this kind of compendium of, of vocabulary of, uh, of thinking of, you know, how you approach the next vintage. So to me, I, I like to look back and then learn and then bring that forward for, you know, four weeks from now when harvest starts. That's sort of the way I look at it. So, Andre, as usual, I, uh, I have something special that you can't have. Uh -huh. Hang on, and hang on, hang on. Craig doesn't know that every time... One of us swears we put something in the swear jar, which the every few months we send a donation to Brian Schmidt of Vineland Estates for his Haiti project. But Michael, f you. Okay, Whoa. so and I'll take that and that's I'll a five dollar one is it? Or that's a, that's a good five dollar yeah, one because that's nice. that's on purpose. That's not even uh, no, that accidental. Was, that, was, that was very directed, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, Andre. Uh, and here's here's the funniest part of this, as I uh, I was in contact with uh, with Craig uh, yesterday, and I said I'll pull something special out of the cellar uh, to make Andre jealous, and he said yes, let's do that. So, um, <laughs> hang, on. Yeah. hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay, along with me on this. You so show me, you, I'm, you I'm show me a little something for Craig. Yeah, you show me yours. Let's see what I can pull out of my cellar. Actually, I don't right. think I have anything that could possibly make you guys jealous, but maybe I, I have something of what you're opening. Oh, it's an older one. Oh, Let's geez. see if he can actually uh, actually pick out like a year or or the wine. I don't know if he was looking at the label at all. Hmm. Well, now I did chill this one a little bit to, to give okay. it a little, a little fighting chance uh, in the heat here. Yeah. Well, I'm Let's have a look. So that's got to be um, sort of eight, seven or eight years old. It's not five. It's a bit older than that, I think. Um, very soft. So it's sort of settled in. So it could be 11. could be 11 or 13, actually. I think you might have pulled a, a sneaky one there. It's quite soft on the palate. Yeah. And the nose is still quite vibrant, actually. 
Mm. Andre, you want to guess? Uh, suck my. Whoa, there you go. That's an extra $5 in the kitty there. Yeah. Um, is it 11? Would you like to know, or? 2011 vintage, or? Just whip it out, Michael. Oh, it's a tenner. Wow. It is the, uh, it's my last bottle of 2010 Red Shale Cab Franc, Andre. Wow. Okay, so the oldest vintage of Trius Red I have is 2010. Should I open that? Uh... That was actually Merlot-based that year, if I remember. Yeah. Um, was it the first year I came on and it was... Yeah, so this is the first year. Yeah, uh, so yeah. That's a first, it's a first-year uh, Craig McDonald wine. And, I thought and you be... would have aged that for... That's getting into the age character a bit more than I would have thought, actually, yep. but still pretty powerful tannins. Eh? Yeah. That's the big. thing. Yeah, yeah. Still got... Uh, lots of tobacco on there. I think the fruit's tobacco, a little... Yeah. Uh, a little um, in the background, but I bet you yeah. if we leave it open for a bit, it might start to show I agree. in about an hour. Yeah, I thought it was 11, I thought, but 10, obviously, a riper year. Um, it's it's starting to, that primary fruit is long gone, and you're really getting those developed uh, secondary. There's a leather and... It's It's been interesting to see that the 20... The, the, there's still the red current there. There's still yeah. a bit of brightness. The, the 2010s haven't held on, I think, as long as people thought they would, given the vintage conditions. Well, yeah, and um, I wish I wish I could have put them all in a DM cork back in those days too. The natural corks, um, as you guys know, when you you put a natural cork in, it starts a journey of deviation. It's just a question of when and how much over time. There's no two there's no two natural corked wines that, you know, over ten years are gonna taste the same. So, you know, you always expect the unexpected when you put it in cork. Um, I think the screw cap and the DM it closes the gap a bit. It tightens up the deviation but um, I, I think that's part of it in this one. I think I see a bit more age than I would have expected, but, you know, that's not a bad thing. That's part of the journey of, of wine, so... Oh, here we go. God, what are you opening now? I got one more, Andre. This oh, one, you're... Uh, I'd be surprised if you even got something close to this. All right, go for it. Go for it, Michael. Wow. And Lord only knows I'm going to actually get the cork out of this sucker. Well, I didn't see that one coming. I hope it opens up and a genie comes out and just makes you disappear. Oh. No. 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 Ah. Amateur the hour. Cork, the, the cork, um, what we call, shat itself halfway through. Yeah. <laughs> you had a, a quarter to go and it just disintegrated. I'm so. sorry, does shat count towards the swear jar? No, shat is a, shat is a legitimate uh, Aussie yeah, term. Yeah, shat itself. Uh, this is in a small bottle. Andre, did you open up that uh, that ten or not? Nah, I'm saving it because I have every vintage from ten to seventeen. I think the eighteen's coming out. The eighteen? How is the eighteen there, Craig? We uh, I, I've been seeing it online. Uh, you want to give a plug for the current vintage or the current coming out vintage of the uh, Trius Red? Yeah, you know what? It's it's um, much better than I would have thought. And the Cab Sauve was the star of the show that saved the vintage. Um, much leathery, you know, very leathery skins. The softness of Cab Franc and, uh, and Cab, sorry, Cab Franc and Merlot uh, really got hammered in Niagara on the Lake. Because it was such a crazy year for uh, late season. Um, but the Cab okay, so, was, so not it actually looks really tight. So really not getting tight. hammered in the good kind of way. Well, yeah, it was. I'm not going to lie. You know, I'm, I, this is why marketers hate when I get on and talk about this because I speak the truth, but. But 18 is a vintage that, you know, most... In Niagara-on-the-Lake, 
very different in, in Beamsville on the other side of the canal in 18. Um, they seem to have better, because of the slope of the bench, the better airflow, it, everything just kind of sat in Niagara on the Lake and uh, it got so bloody hot that literally some of the vine, some of the grapes seemed to melt. You know, we were uh, plagued with extreme heat and humidity. 18, so we had some challenges. 18, uh, 18 was so weird too, depending on, on variety, because I made... Um... I made the one pigs fly rosé in 2018. We did our harvest on September 25th. And I was so grateful to work with Pinot because after September 25th, it's like it rained for an entire month. Yes, it did. So so it was a good year. 2018 should be a good year for Pinot and Gamay and Chard, the, the varieties that ripen early. If you're a Bordeaux variety fan, 2018 was a bit more of a challenge. I think Merlots came out okay, and then I think after Merlot, it was kind of That's done. right. Yeah, the Merlot was the turning point. Merlot and Chardonnay, everything was great up to that point. Late season, uh, so anything down by the lake, anything was a bit like a Niagara on the Lake a bit later. So in the cool, if that makes sense, the cooler sites of Niagara on the Lake. Uh, so down by the lake, they, you know, was challenging. But, um, yeah, we, we everything in the first two-thirds was great, but I, the, the last was, was challenging. So... Except for Cabernet Sauvignon, and that was the, the big surprise to me. It just really uh, held all of our wines. So we blended a lot of Cab Sauve into many, even in the you know the Cab Francs and the Merlots. So it all got a kiss of um, uh, Cab Sauve because of the tannin and the structure. So very 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 good in Cab Sauve, but the, the Cab Franc was challenging. So Andre, I opened up uh, a half bottle here, and uh, I'll, I'll be honest, there was a little bit of a moldy cork to it. Uh, what are you opening? But um, just like I did with uh, with Angelo, I, I thought I would uh, look into the uh, sweet wines and see what uh, oh, what I come up with. Good call. Not a bad way to finish, actually. The old um, it's got to be the oh, it's an old Hillebrand. Yeah, it's, now, right? it's all, that or it's a Creekside. But I don't think like, you guys made a lot of ice wines or. No, or, it's funny. We did. We did um. We did a great. Robert, remember this? I wonder if he's one of his listening or not. But you never. We'll know. make sure he does. Ask him about the um, select late harvest Pinot Gris that we did. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was when a grower accidentally sprayed his leaves with the wrong uh, thing, and all the leaves fell off, and the grapes were pristine. So we're like <laughs> seventeen bricks, sixteen bricks. What are we going to do? We can't harvest it. So we just left it, and we we picked it. <laughs> Picked it in November and made an incredible um, late harvest. Yeah. So, but we we weren't known for our ice wine, no. No. So, and I, and I did go into the cellar and look, and the uh, the oldest uh, Creekside I had was 2010, which at that point you're long gone. Long gone. So, yeah. Well, not long gone. Well, six actually, months gone. You know, six months. So uh, I couldn't very well pull something like that out. So obviously a first year red shale and now uh something that i i don't think you in, in any way shape or form had a hand in making nor do i i know if you're in ontario at this time so how about that no it's got to be a 90s vidal sure yeah. it's a 90s vidal that's what uh yeah that's what he thinks that's what i think yeah well this is a podcast about cabernet franc i know yeah, so uh, I didn't have any, unlike uh, with Cave Spring, when we had a whole bunch of different uh, kinds of wine, and I could open up a, a late harvest Cabernet from, uh, what year was that, Andre? Do you remember? 98? Nope. I was in high school in 98. 
This is actually ten years uh, ten years earlier. It oh is a, boy, it's an eighty-eight late harvest Vidal from Hillebrand. Oh my goodness! Holy yeah, crap! No, definitely not over here at that point. Yeah. So and it's uh, you're not missing anything on that one, Andre. I have to be honest with you. It's almost dry. Sugar yeah. sugar content and acids just weren't high enough to hold on for. Good God, I'm old. Thirty. Yeah, then it gets thirty-two like, years. Um, I guess 32 years old. Not not a horrible wine, but in, in no shape, way, shape, or form is that. Uh... It's lanolin, beeswax, you know, shoe polish in the best possible way. The sugar's dried up and become quite tight. And, yeah. uh, all it's, more those... like, it's more like a tiny port, but without yeah. the sweetness of that. I love, I love that you threw in in the best way possible because my question was going to be shoe polish, eh? Shoe polish, eh? Uh, you drink a lot of shoe polish? Oh. Well, you know, he's, he's an Australian. You know, they drink funny things down there. They have uh, what's that that stuff? Oh, that um, what is that stuff? Oh, I had. Should have said nugget. That would have been more, uh, you know, better to say than shoe polish. But for you know, like wax when you wax a floor. The oh, and the wax. wait, what's that stuff that you guys have? I tried to block it out of my head when I was in Australia. It's Vegemite. Vegemite. Oh my God, that stuff's horrific. Is that like? Oh, is that like? Is that? Like, is, that, is, that like <laughs> is that Marmite? Another one? Jeez. Marmite's just as bad, I think. No, Marmite's delicious. No, it's it's just it's like... It's much worse than Vegemite. It's, it's not the real deal. If you're going to go all the way, go Vegemite. Salty deliciousness. And that brings us uh, back to our garage talk with the uh, men at work. Oh, God. Andre, uh, I think that's it for Craig, is it not? I think it is. Uh, I I have to cobble the, the people... Andre, always good to connect, mate. Appreciate... Uh, you're dialing in seven times to connect with Michael's internet. That's it. I mean, the people are not going to understand the technical difficulties we went through to get this, but as the producer of this podcast, I'm going to pat myself on the back right now because it's going to sound awesome. Well, I, I would have passed you a glass of this 2010, but unfortunately, you weren't here. Hey, Michael, before we sign off, eat... There's another five bucks. Another five bucks. Well, that was exciting. I really like Cabernet Franc. I still like Cabernet Franc. And I'm glad we got to make you feel guilty about not being around to try some, you know, really neat old stuff. Uh, I just, I love that when, when Craig speaks that he, um, he, he, he doesn't mince words at all in saying that Cabernet Franc could be Canada's national grape. I, I'm, I'm in total agreement with him. So uh, I, I know during when he said that, I, I think my chin almost dropped the floor. It, it was a good thing we weren't on video because I was not expecting that uh, because I've been I've been touting that for a while. And um, to hear somebody else say it and, and somebody who, who is is bioregional when he when he travels between places and 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 tastes wine from across canada i know that he he ends up in the east coast at sometimes too um that he thinks cabernet franc could be a national grape is pretty exciting even though i still think it's chardonnay it should be chardonnay you'll always think it's chardonnay yeah, so. because it's what's on your table 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 so you can check us out on patreon patreon.com slash two guys talking wine we always appreciate the support and Michael and I are still trying to find a way to incentivize people to check it out and maybe uh, get some rewards for helping us. But at the very least, we appreciate the people who do support us and help us keep this podcast going. So he is Andre WineReview.ca, something like that. Yeah, and at Andre WineReview on all social medias. 
And I'm Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com at The Great Guy most places and myself on other places. How about that? Andre, um, good night. That was weird. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes.